Hello everyone and welcome to the second episode of Ode to the Code a podcast on the code of civil procedure My name is Aditya Prasanna Bhattacharya and I am joined today by my fellow student and colleague Ambarin Khambati who will host this episode with me Now before I hand over the reins to Ambarin I would like to welcome back our in-house CPC expert Dr Nanda Kishore with some exciting news The first episode of our podcast which aired last week has reached just over 200 listeners already. Welcome back sir. Thank you Aditya. I'm glad to be back on your show. Um with that, I will invite Ambarin to commence this episode. Hello everyone. In last week's episode, we touched upon the principle of adversarial litigation, where both the common law and the CPC attempt to give an even playing field to both sides in a dispute. in order to ensure a fair result this is also evident in the principle of natural justice of audi alterem partem which means that no party must be condemned unheard now we see that the cpc provides room for relaxation of these principles in several circumstances it does in fact allow for one party to obtain relief either in the form of an ex parte decree or ex parte interim order in the absence of the other side recently in fact the city civil court in bangalore granted an ex parte ad interim injunction to mr tejasvi surya a bjp candidate preventing 49 media houses from publishing any content which would malign his reputation the date for hearing objections of the other party was set to 2 months later which would essentially injunct them for the whole duration of the elections So could you please give us an insight into these situations where audi alterem partem is an in an adversarial system can be dispensed with Yes as you know the principle of audi alterem partem is an essential principle in the english um, system of civil procedure as for that principle the contesting sides the warring sides have to be given fair opportunity to contest the issues which are against them and also to lead evidence which might be in their favor and finally to argue the matter in court right. this is the essence of the principle however in certain exceptional circumstances the code the code of civil procedure does recognize that the principle of audi alterem partem can be dispensed with for a certain period of time only so for example under order 39 of the code of civil procedure which provides for temporary injunctions temporary injunctions should normally be granted under rule 3 only by hearing the opposite side after hearing the opposite side in fact rule 3 says before granting injunction court to direct notice to opposite party and only then grant injunctive relief however in exceptional cases the court can dispense with the grant of notice to the opposite side and grant ex parte injunctions in the matter right so we see that like you said there are several different kinds of interim relief that you could get under the cpc for the sake of clarity could you please tell us the difference between interim injunctions ad interim injunctions and ex parte ad interim injunctions okay now with regard to injunctions you will make an application along with your suit under order 39 rules 1 and 2 normally and you will seek injunctive relief 
which will inure to your benefit until the disposal of the suit. Now, under Rule 3 of the Code of Civil Procedure, normally the court should direct notice to the opposite party, allow the opposite party to file its objections, hear the opposite party, and only then grant injunctive relief in the matter. This is the grant of regular injunctive relief in a suit. This injunction will inure to the benefit of the party until the disposal of the suit. Now, in addition to this kind of injunction, there's something called an ad interim injunction, which can be granted by the civil court. So this is an injunction which is granted pending the disposal and hearing of the application for injunction in the main. That is the court is saying, until we hear and decide your application under order 39 rules one and two, until then we will grant you some injunctive relief till the main application is disposed of. So this is called an ad interim, interim injunction. And normally as per order 39 rule uh, 3A, such injunction should not exceed 30 days. It should only be for a period of 30 days. So, so, so to summarize, ad Add interim injunction relief in yours to the benefit of the party until the disposal of the interim application, whereas regular injunction in yours to the benefit of the party until the disposal of the suit. Now, in addition to this categorization, we have ex parte injunctions and regular injunctions. An ex parte injunction would could which could be an ad interim ex parte injunction or a regular ex parte or a regular injunction relates to a situation where the court has granted injunctive relief without issuing notice to the other side without hearing the other side. Per contra, you have the regular injunction where after hearing the other side, the court has granted relief. So these are the two categorizations that you must keep note of. Right, sir, and this is exactly what had happened in the Tejasvi Surya case. It was in fact an ex parte ad interim injunction which was given without the presence of the 49 media houses which were impleded as respondents. Today's episode will focus on such ex parte injunctions which are often being used as tools by unscrupulous litigants to delay and frustrate the trial and in several cases to force the opposite party to settle. This not only denies the opposite party their right to be heard but also increases the delay and cost in litigation. Dr. Arun Mohan, who is a senior advocate at the Supreme Court, in his book, Justice Courts and Delays, says that 90% of court time and resources are expended on uncalled for litigation, which is created by the procedures in the CPC, which give incentives to wrongdoers. And such uncalled for litigation also gets encouragement when courts do not impose realistic costs. So, sir, two points of discussion arise in this regard. First, how do you think procedures in the CPC give incentives to both parties to delay the process? With regard to ex parte injunctions, in the normal course, as I just uh, mentioned, under Rule 3, the court should make every effort to grant injunctive relief only after hearing both sides. However, in several scenarios, it becomes inevitable that the court protects the interests of the plaintiff by granting ex parte injunctive relief. So, for example, uh, let's say you are a tenant and you come to court filing a suit seeking injunctive relief against your landlord on the averment or allegation that your landlord is trying to evict you forcefully even though the period of lease has not expired. 
Now, on this allegation, on these statements made by you in support of your application for temporary injunction, the court would have to consider whether to grant you injunctive relief or not ex parte. Now, suppose you make the averment in your application that every day the uh, landlord is coming with rowdy elements and trying to evict you then the court obviously can't wait for the defendant to be served for him to file vakalat and then come with his objections and only then grant you ex parte or then grant you relief so obviously in such circumstances it becomes necessary that the court grant ex parte relief to you and very commonly the courts do exercise their jurisdiction and their discretion to grant ex parte relief in such circumstances because if you don't grant relief in such cases something terrible is going to happen which you have to prevent so you have to take the statement made by the plaintiff at its face value without verifying whether in fact it is a false statement or not. Because if you don't take it at face value and don't give him the injunctive relief, some serious consequence may ensue. So very often in civil courts they grant reliefs because the nature of the situation is such that you have to grant injunctive relief. However, having granted it, the rule, rule 3A says within 30 days you should try to dispose of the main application itself after hearing the opposite side. So if this is strictly adhered to, then there's no scope for misuse of injunctive relief because within 30 days you will uh, have the other side filing its vakalat, filing its counter and arguing the matter and then you can decide on injunctive relief in the main after hearing both sides and there's less, less chance for uh, giving a wrong order in such circumstances. So therefore I would say there is some scope for misuse of ex parte injunctive relief, but not so much if you follow the Code of Civil Procedure strictly. If you follow it strictly, there's not much scope. But of course, if you grant ex parte relief and then keep adjourning the matter and don't take up the matter for hearing of the main application for injunctive relief for several months, then of course, you're going to create a situation where one party has obtained an ex parte injunction order and has kept adjourning the matter in order to defeat the rights of the opposite side. That shouldn't be allowed to happen. Yes, sir. The scope of granting an injunction does seem to be very limited. And this is also because of the three-pillar test that has been laid down by case law, which requires for the grant of an injunction, first, the plaintiff to establish a prima facie case in his favour, second, to prove that the irreparable harm that will be caused to him will not be able to be compensated in monetary terms, and third, that the balance of convenience lies in his favour. Yet we see courts who routinely grant ex parte ad interim injunctions, such as the sweeping order in the Tejasvi Surya case. Why do you think this is the case? Uh, yes, once again, coming back to the point I made earlier, it's because in some scenarios, it becomes inevitable that you grant relief on the basis of the averments made in the plaint without verifying the same uh, with the statements made in the written statement or in the objections filed by the defendants. Because the very nature, the gravity of the scenario is such that you have to grant interim relief, otherwise the plaintiff will suffer irreparable damage. So you can grant interim relief in such circumstances, but I would think that the scope for misuse is more because after the grant of injunctive relief in the main, that is even after hearing both sides, you sometimes grant injunctive relief and then the case is not heard for several months or several years. So this is the real area where I think that injunctive relief is being misused because let's take the earlier situation that I, which I had given. There's a tenant who says he's being wrongfully evicted. He comes to court and he files a suit claiming permanent injunction against his landlord. 
In that suit, he makes an application for temporary injunction, restraining the landlord from evicting him during the pendency of the suit. In the first instance, the trial court may grant him ex parte ad interim injunction, restraining the landlord from evicting him. Now, that will inure to his benefit only for a period of 30 days or maybe a little bit more if the defendant takes his own time to file vakalat and counter. Suppose the defendant files his vakalat counter and then argues the matter. Then let's say two months after the grant of that injunction, the main injunction itself is granted. Now here you have a situation where it's not ad interim ex parte injunction, but a regular injunction which has been granted in favor of the plaintiff because the plaintiff has raised triable issues. So for example, the tenant says the lease period is, is still subsisting by virtue of various documents or by, by virtue of an oral extension of the tenancy, etc. Whereas the landlord denies this. Now, in order to establish the truth, you need a trial. Without a trial, you can't uh, decide the matter. Therefore, in such circumstances, the court is likely to grant injunctive relief on the principle of balance of convenience in favor of the plaintiff and keep the injunction pending till the disposal of the suit. Now, here the problem is that since we have a very bad judge to population ratio or judge to case ratio, every civil court being burdened with more than uh, 100 or 70 or 100 cases every day, you get dates once in two and a half months, once in three months. Every time the court takes up your case, they adjourn it for two and a half or three months. Which means that for the case to be finally heard, for the trial to commence and get over and for the judgment and decree to be passed, it will take several years. Now this is another kind of misuse of injunctive relief because the court is not able to apply its judicial mind and hear the matter and conduct the trial expeditiously and dispose of the case expeditiously and grant a judgment and decree in the case and therefore due to the huge backlog of cases the case remains pending in the registry for several years with an injunctive relief in favor of the plaintiff. So this is one kind of misuse of injunctive relief, which I think is a little bit different from the misuse of injunctive relief where somebody gets an ex parte injunction and uh, uses it to his or her advantage for a few or for a few for two, three months and then uh, takes a lot of advantage out of that particular scenario. I think in this particular case that you're referring to, Tejasvi Surya's case, that's what you're talking about. I don't know about the merits of the case, but I think that's what you're getting at. Yes. Yes, sir. And on that note, I do also think that injunctions were envisaged as a means of protecting a party's interests in the duration of the trial because of the delays in the judicial system. However, it seems that most of the system is in fact clogged up with applications for interim relief. And because of litigants trying to gain unfair advantages over the other side through ex parte relief. And even more time is spent in challenging such orders. Would you agree? Yes, I would agree somewhat. Uh, it's undoubtedly true that in our Indian legal system, uh, especially on the civil side, the uh, jurisprudence of inter interim relief has come to uh, dominate the entire landscape. And therefore, lawyers have to be very cautious, very careful and very adversarial insofar as interim relief is concerned. And uh, this interim relief plays a very big role in determining the fate of the parties, especially since the cases take several years to be decided. If you've gone to court and you've got an interim order in your favor, and that's going to stay in force for six or seven years, then for the next six or seven years, you don't have to worry about anything until the matter comes up for judgment. Even thereafter, you have the chance of going up in appeal 
and getting an interim order at the appellate stage. So all this can wreak havoc on the rights of parties. This is an unfortunate state of affairs, which I think primarily is due to the lack of infrastructure and sufficient number of judges in our courts. Several reports, uh, law commission reports and other reports constituted by the governments have opined that the primary cause for delays in our civil justice system is the fact that a very meager amount of resources is spent towards the judiciary. And therefore, the number of judges that we have is totally inadequate to deal with the number of cases. The reports have recommended that at the very least, we should double our judge strength so that we can handle our cases effectively. So instead of having your cases being listed once every uh, two and a half months, you'd have your case being listed once in two weeks. Right. In fact, you could contrast our system with other more efficient systems in countries like Germany and the United States. In Germany, I believe an average civil suit takes about five and a half months to be decided. And at the appellate level, it's decided within three and a half months. So you can see that in such a, such a situation, there's no scope for misuse of interlocutory relief because even if you've gotten an interlocutory order, which is wrong, you only get the benefit of it for a few months. And then the main matter itself is heard. Therefore, this timeline makes all the difference in uh, determining whether interlocutory relief is, is, is an abuse of the process or not. I think it's very interesting that because of the very nature of an interim relief, when it's placed in a system such as ours, where time is a very big factor and there is a lack of efficiency, it creates several problems um, which arise from the fact that um, Indian courts are not able to decide disputes in a manner that is quick and efficient. And I think it's very interesting that you say that the discussion and the criticism of interim relief needs to be shifted to what happens after the interim injunction is granted and not just what factors it is granted on. Because what factors it is granted on depends exclusively upon the jurisdiction and the discretion of the courts. And that can be regulated only by case law. But policy reform, I think, can focus more on what happens after the interim injunction is granted in terms of making the judicial system in India more efficient. Yes, absolutely. So do you think the issue of getting adjournments after getting an injunction could be solved if courts would grant more realistic costs, which would disincentivize parties? Because right now it seems as if getting an ex parte injunction or ex parte ad interim injunction coupled with the imposition of only nominal costs seems to be giving an unfair advantage to one party. Yes, I would mostly agree with you, mostly agree with the statement that you're making. Um, the Indian legal system, insofar as the civil justice system is concerned, as you are aware, imposes very unrealistic costs for the loser or for the person who has come to court without a good case. Under the Code of Civil Procedure, Section 35A provides for costs to be imposed where the claim is vexatious or false to the knowledge of the party concerned. And here, the limit of costs is only rupees 3,000, which is absolutely meager. Uh, at the very least, it should have been something like 30,000 or uh, a figure upwards of that. And therefore, this is one of the reasons why the civil justice system is failing. Persons can go to court and make false statements and carry on the case for several years and end of the day if they lose the case they can, they, they can come out laughing because no realistic costs will be imposed upon them. Therefore this is a system which does benefit the wrongdoer in the sense that if you've made false statements, set up a false case, 
nothing much is going to happen to you uh, you're not going to suffer anything terrible and therefore you can afford to play the litigation game and let the case go on for several years in court as long as you're able to pay your lawyer that seems to be uh, the the bottom line in so far as civil litigation is concerned i think what's also relevant to note that in addition to the three pillar test there are several other factors that we can look at um while focusing on this discussion so in the leading case of american cyanamide uh, company versus ethicon lord diplock himself had stated that in addition to the three pillar test there may be many other special factors that have to be taken into consideration so for instance um we can take into consideration things like cases where the applicant has not come to court with clean hands or has suppressed material facts um in addition to this it's also very clear that judicial proceedings cannot be used to protect or perpetuate a wrong committed by a person who approaches the court so in cases where the plaintiff is attempting to use the system of interim relief and ex parte ad interim injunctions to perpetuate a wrong that he has committed or where he is coming to the court uh, with hands that are not clean or where the plaintiff is using false and forged documents to gain ex parte reliefs i think a strict cost regime should be imposed by the court I absolutely agree with you Aditya. Um I agree that the system should be uh, changed to the effect that if somebody has come to court by making false statements by basing his claim on a false case by concocting documents etc he should be very severely penalized. He can't be allowed to get away with it without exemplary cause which uh, which unfortunately the system as it now stands does not impose. reaching towards a conclusion i think it's very important here to note that the court grants such relief ex debito justiciae that is in order to meet the ends of justice and we must also note that it's a discretionary power it's an equitable relief and interim relief cannot be sought by parties or injunctions cannot be sought by parties as a matter of right or course it's something that lies within the sole discretion of the court and therefore the court does have the ability to very strongly regulate this regime I think sir in addition to the three pillar test if you look at all the other factors concerned we can maybe think of a system wherein the court while granting such reliefs will very clearly enumerate that all the factors have been satisfied and record the reasons for the satisfaction of these factors now when this mandatory requirement of recording reasons is imposed it becomes tougher for the courts to grant interim relief in cases that are frivolous or in cases where interim relief is not necessary what do you think yes absolutely aditya in fact rule 3 of order 39 does impose the condition that the court should record reasons if it's granting ex parte relief and i might also mention that under sections 193 to 196 of the ipc the indian penal code making a false statement giving false evidence in court etc is a punishable offence but we very routinely see people filing false cases cases based on false claims in civil courts the plaint after all is verified through affidavit and they also give evidence in court based on the plaint and we often see that judges take no action against persons who have committed such offences in the course of civil proceedings very rarely do we see any judge invoking his power under section 340 crpc read with section 195 to give a written complaint to the uh, officer concerned to take criminal action against the litigant for giving false evidence in court this is another reason why the civil justice system has not done so well this is because 
somebody who makes a false statement, gives false evidence, runs on a false case, is not punished enough. Therefore, they keep uh, fighting the litigation in court. In fact, I would like to quote something from uh, Dr. Arun Mohan's book, which I think is quite apt. He says, make any false state, uh, false averment, conceal any fact, raise any plea, produce any false document, deny any genuine document, it will, be, it will successfully stall the litigation and in any case, delay the matter endlessly. The other party will be coerced into a settlement which will be profitable for me and the probability of the court ordering prosecution for perjury is less than that of meeting with an accident while crossing the road. I think, sir, another point that we should discuss is what would you do as counsel for a defendant against whom such ex parte injunction has been granted? Let's say we consider four factors, right? In addition to the three pillar test of balance of inconvenience, irreparable damage, um, and and the first factor, prima facie case, and, and the requirement of a prima facie case. Let's say the injunction has been granted ex parte without recording of reasons as to why ex parte relief has been given. As counsel for the defendant, what steps would you take now? then it would be even easier to vacate the interlocutory relief since you could always make an application under order 39 rule 4 to vacate the interim order and then you could make in your you could state in your application the fact that in the order passed by the court no reasons have been given so vacating the said order becomes much easier you could also prefer a writ against the said order and in such a writ petition you could raise the contention that the learned single judge or sorry the learned uh, judge has not um, given adequate reasons for the order passed the last material point for discussion sir i think is in all of these interim applications for um, ad interim injunctions, I have noticed that they file the application under Order 39, Rule 1 and 2, read with Section 151. And Section 151 gives the court some inherent powers um, to give certain kinds of reliefs. Now, in my understanding, the inherent power provision, which is Section 151, can only be exercised in cases where a certain procedure is not provided by the court already. And in the leading case of Padam Sen, which you had taught to us um, in our course in civil procedure, it was very clearly mentioned that when the code provides for a certain kind of procedure, section 151 cannot be used to contravene that procedure or supplant it in any manner. It's only a residuary provision which operates when a certain kind of procedure is not given in the code already. So when a regime for interim relief is given under order 39 rules one and two already, do you think it's all right for an application to also approach the court under section 151 and for courts to use section 151 to grant interim reliefs? Well, as you all know, order 39 rules one and two talk about injunctive relief to restrain the commission or uh, any omission related to some property which would affect the plaintiff. The other provisions in order 39 are also related to property, etc. Therefore, in certain circumstances, the courts have taken recourse to section 151 of the Code of Civil Procedure, which is a residuary provision, and uh, have granted interim relief on the basis of section 151. Now, I don't think in this particular case, if you're talking about the uh, Tejasvi Surya case, I don't think that it's a case where they ought not to have relied upon section 151, because insofar as injunctive relief relating to defamation, etc., is concerned, Order 39, Rules 1 and 2 would not apply, in which case the courts would rightly have invoked Section 151. However, 
if let's say there's some relief being sought with regard to property and a litigant invokes section 151 when in fact order 39 rules 1 and 2 are applicable that would be not permissible because the cardinal principle in the application of section 151 seems to be there should be no other provision in the code which squarely applies to this kind of scenario then you can invoke section 151 for unforeseen scenarios Okay, but if there is such a scenario and the parliament has mandated the manner in which this scenario should be dealt with through specific and express rules, then it doesn't, it, it, it's not very good to use section 151 and override those provisions. Right. So in this episode, we have discussed first the principles that should govern the grant of interim injunctions and interim reliefs in general. But more importantly, we have identified a very crucial point that the discussion and criticism needs to be shifted to what happens after interim reliefs are granted because this is the space wherein misuse and abuse of the court process is noticed. So in as far as future litigants are concerned and future lawyers are concerned, the important part is how interim reliefs are granted. In as far as future policy makers are concerned, I think we need to look at how to fix the system in as far as efficiency goes, because that will solve the regime of interim reliefs to a great extent. On that note, and with a firm resolve to continue this principle-based discussion on civil procedure, I am very pleased to conclude today's episode. Thank you, Professor, for joining us today. And thank you, Ambarin, for hosting this episode. More importantly, I would like to thank all of our listeners for tuning in today. That's all we have for this episode. See you again next week.